Let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to John 4. Uh, John chapter 4, uh, we're doing a verse-by-verse uh, study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this book, uh, we come this morning to John chapter 4, verse 43. My goal this morning is to cover verses 43 to 54. And the title of the message is, A Man Believes with His Household. A man believes. He believes in Jesus with his household. In our passage this morning, we're going to meet a man coming to Jesus and the evangelistic tool that God uses to bring this man to Jesus is a thing that we call parenting. Those of you who are parents know that parenting is a ministry that will often take you miles beyond the outer limits of what you could ever do in your own strength. Beyond that, at birth or at the birth of each child, you as a parent grow a thousand new pain and pleasure Sensors rendering you more vulnerable to the joys and the sorrows of this life, sometimes leaving you broken with worry or with grief for a child in one moment and then soaring with joy in the next. Parenting is a ministry that can either drive you to Christ or drive you crazy. If you truly love your children as deeply as you ought, and if you truly recognize how high the stakes are, and if you will enter into the task of parenting your children with all of your might, you are in for a journey that will transform you. And many of you have experienced that. In his book entitled Sacred Parenting, Gary Thomas makes this point more beautifully than I can He says, and I quote, unless we are stone cold spiritually, virtually spiritual corpses, the journey of caring for, raising, training, and loving children will mark us indelibly and powerfully. We cannot be the same people we once were. We will be forever changed, eternally altered, spiritually speaking, We need to raise children every bit as much as they need us to raise them, unquote. These words are so true. And listen to me carefully this morning. Every word that I just read to you also applies to every one of you who are involved in ministering to others whom you have come to care about. The ministry of caring for others training and loving and serving them will mark you indelibly and powerfully. Spiritually speaking, you need to minister to others every bit as much as they need you to minister to them. And I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of this fact on this particular Sunday as we launch our ministry year. 
In our passage today, we're going to meet a man who loves his son so much that his heart could break. A caring man who takes upon himself the responsibility to get his son the best care possible in a dire situation, which leads this man straight to Jesus. And as a result of his encounter with Jesus, he, this man, and his whole household will never be the same. In the message today, we're going to look at the story of this father's transformation uh, into a man of deep faith in Christ. But first, let's observe what Jesus does in order to make himself reachable to this man. Look at verse 43. In verse 43, the text tells us that Jesus leaves his very successful time in Samaria, and he comes into Galilee, which is an interesting move on Jesus' part, especially when you consider his rationale for leaving Samaria and coming into Galilee. Listen to what John says in verses 43 and 44. After the two days, in other words, after the two days in Samaria, he, Jesus, went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country or in his fatherland. And the preceding verses of this chapter, uh, as we have seen in recent weeks, we find Jesus in Samaria where he's being honored and believed in as the Messiah. Many in the city of Sychar are believing in him But now in verse 43, Jesus walks away from that. He leaves Samaria and returns to his home country of Galilee, which harbored the city of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And he returns to Galilee knowing that in Galilee he would not receive the honor that is due him. And I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. Jesus left a place of honor in order to go to a place of dishonor. And one of his reasons for doing so was to keep an appointment with a particular father who was going to need him. Now, notice what the text says in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now, if you're reading carefully, you'll be scratching your head reading verse 45. At first glance, it's surprising to read that the Galileans received Jesus when John has just described Galilee as being a place without honor for Jesus. But when we read the reason that the Galileans were receiving him, we come to understand that there's a defect in their reception of him. The Galileans received Jesus evidently only because they saw the signs that he performed in Jerusalem, according to verse 45. John's description of these Galileans here in John 4 Verse 45 takes us right back to John's description of the Jews at the end of chapter 2, the Jews in Jerusalem, where John says, in fact, go back to chapter 2, verse 23, 
where John says, now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. So they believed, but only because of what they saw of the miracles he was performing. And now in our passage today, it turns out that these Galileans were just like the Jews in Jerusalem. In fact, these are some of the same people who were in Jerusalem. For John tells us that some of these Galileans were at the Jerusalem feast also. They simply believed in Jesus because of the signs, the miracles that they saw him doing, not because of his words like the Samaritans who believed in Jesus upon hearing his words. This is why we're going to get the strong impression as this passage unfolds that Jesus is quite reserved around these Galileans on this particular visit when it came to doing miracles because he knew that their reception of him was not rooted in his teaching or in his identity as the Messiah, but it was fed by their craving to see him performing signs and wonders. This is the context in which the story of our passage today takes place. Among these Galileans, we're going to learn, was a certain man who will travel from Capernaum to Cana, a man whose son is writhing in the feverish throes of death, as for this dad, he's on a journey toward a true and genuine faith in Jesus as he goes about trying to get his son the healing that he needs. And he's going to end up, this dad is going to end up with far more than he expected because by the time this story is concluded, this man will be believing in Jesus together with the entirety of his household. And the way we'll break down our study of this passage is we'll observe five steps Five steps that this caring father takes in his journey toward believing in Jesus with his whole household. And the first of the steps is this. Number one, he goes to Jesus and persistently begs him to heal his son. He goes to Jesus and persistently begs Jesus to heal his son. Observe what the text says in verse 46. Therefore, he, Jesus, came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. We learned about that in chapter 2. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. The Greek word translated royal official speaks of a person who is enlisted in the service of a king. In this case, this man would be someone who served Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee from 4 BC to AD 39. And as John tells us, Jesus is right now in Cana of Galilee, yet this royal official's son is sick in Capernaum, where this royal official lives or is stationed. And Capernaum is about 18 miles north, northeast of Cana, where Jesus is, 18 miles away. Now, observe what happens in verse 47. 
and what it says about this royal official. When he, the royal official, heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The tense of the verb imploring is what's called the imperfect tense, and it indicates that this royal official was repeatedly pleading with Jesus to come down and heal his son, which indicates that Jesus was not granting this man's request, forcing this man to keep persisting and asking Jesus to come down and heal his son. But to this man's credit, rather than being discouraged by Jesus' non-answer, he keeps on pleading with Jesus to come and to heal his boy. When you think about Jesus' slow response to this man, uh, I think you'll see it become evident as we go along, but realize that it's not because Jesus doesn't care but because he's wanting the genuineness of this man's faith to shine forth. Many of the Galileans demanded signs before they would believe in Jesus. And so far, this man is getting no signs. In fact, he's getting no positive response from Jesus at all. Yet he doesn't give up and move on to someone else to help his son. He's locked in on Jesus alone which reveals something to us about the quality of this man's faith in Jesus as he persistently implores Jesus to come with him to Capernaum and to heal his son. And this caring father does even more than this, which leads us to the second step he takes in his journey toward believing in Jesus with his whole household. Number two, he persists in pleading for his son Despite Jesus' rebuke, he persists in pleading for his son despite Jesus' rebuke. Observe what the text says in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Wow, that's quite a reply from Jesus to this father's desperate pleas. Given this father's desperate situation, Jesus' words may even strike you as being somewhat mean. So what is happening here? Is Jesus faulting this man's faith in some way? Some commentators say yes, and maybe they are right. After all, the text says that Jesus speaks these words to him, the royal official. But we should also realize that the Greek pronoun translated you in this passage is actually plural, which is why the New American Standard translators translate the pronoun as you people in order to bring this out. And given this fact, I think Jesus is doing two things here. First of all, he speaks this way to this man in order to further delay answering his request and even to put an obstacle in this man's path in order to create a situation 
in which however this man chooses to respond will show the true nature of his faith. If the man is asking Jesus for this healing only because he wants to see some great miracle, then he likely would drop his request as soon as he hears this rebuke from Jesus. But if this man's motives are truly out of a loving concern for his son and being driven by a true faith in Jesus, then he will persist in asking Jesus to come and heal his son and thereby show that he is not like the Galileans who were just hungry to see some sensational miracle. Secondly, Jesus, I think, speaks this way to this man in the full hearing of others who are around in order to make it clear to anyone else who hears this exchange that he will not be performing some showy miracle simply to satisfy their appetite for some sensational sign and wonder. So he says to this man, look at the text, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. To put it another way, Jesus is saying to this man, you're not like the rest of the Galileans, are you? Are you like all the others who have to see miracles in order to believe? Should I entrust myself to you? That's essentially what Jesus is saying. And I think Jesus knows that this man is different from the Galileans. And he wants this man's response to reveal that fact before Jesus grants this man the miracle that he is seeking. Well, how does this royal official respond? Does he give up and walk away? Does he get mad? Look at verse 49. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. I think we can all be grateful that Jesus spoke to the man the way that he did because it gives us the chance to see the purity and the passion of what this man was after from Jesus. It also shows us how much this father deeply loves his son. In his reply to Jesus, this father doesn't defend himself at all from Jesus' rebuke, nor does he try to argue with Jesus, for all he knows, maybe his faith is defective in some way. But if anyone can fix that, it's Jesus. Beyond that, what's most important to this man is his son's welfare. So he says to Jesus, sir, come down, come down to Capernaum before my child dies. When he says these words to Jesus, he's indicating very clearly that he's not after some miracle from Jesus in order to decide whether or not he wants to believe in Jesus. He's showing that he already believes in Jesus' power and goodness. After all, he's already traveled 18 miles to get to Jesus. And Jesus is the one and only one that this man wants to bring with him back to Capernaum. And even though Jesus has been slow to give him a positive answer, this man is not giving up on Jesus and going to anyone else. 
Clearly, this man believes in Jesus to a high degree already, perhaps with his faith growing moment by moment. And now in the face of Jesus' pushback or rebuke, this man presses his claim, saying, Jesus, you have to come down with me to Capernaum before my child dies. How blessed is this son to have a dad interceding for him with such persistence and passion. Are your children so blessed? As for this man's faith, this is amazing faith, and we see how strong his faith is with what he does even next, which leads us to the third step that he takes in his journey toward believing in Jesus with his whole household. Number three, he believes the word of Jesus regarding the life of his son. He believes the word of Jesus regarding the life of his son. Observe what happens in verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And start it off. Jesus' words, your son lives, amount to a statement that the man's son is healed. And in healing the man's son instantly, Jesus is actually giving this father something even greater than what he was asking Jesus for. This man wanted Jesus to travel back with him to Capernaum on a one or two day journey in order to heal his son upon arrival. But Jesus does better than that by healing this man's son instantly. In other words, this man came to Jesus with what he thought was a plan A, and Jesus replaces this man's plan A with a plan A+. Which included no delayed healing due to travel time. Jesus instantly heals the boy and utters a pronouncement to that effect. And his pronouncement here in verse 50 reveals something about Jesus as the Messiah. It reveals that he has power over distance. He could just speak the word from Cana. 18 miles away from the boy and heal him instantly. I actually got on my Google Maps this week and um, to figure out what's 18 miles away from where we are right here. Jesus doing this would be like me standing right here in this pulpit and pronouncing healing on someone at the Ontario airport. Jesus just says the word and cells inside that boy's body 18 miles away begin to behave differently. And he's healed. This is Jesus, the creator of all things, whose words are fraught with power This is the power of Jesus in whom we believe. Distance is never an issue with Jesus. 
And look at the simple words that Jesus speaks to this man. Your son lives, he declares. Such simple words. But how powerful is this little three-word sentence that Jesus speaks here? The commentator Linsky says, quote, on paper, as we read it from the printed page, it does seem little, yet as here spoken by Jesus, it was mighty. It bore all the power of Jesus' will, a divine pledge, an unconditional assurance, an absolute promise. Jesus' words that he speaks here are not merely truthful words in the sense that they conform to reality. They are so truthful that they bend reality. They change reality and bring reality into alignment with them. As Leon Morris, the commentator, says, Jesus is speaking a word of power, a healing word, not merely a word of prophecy. And guys, we have a New Testament that is full of Jesus' words. So many powerful words of Jesus Even in this very gospel of John, words of truth that Jesus speaks over you and into you if you are a child of God, never underestimate the power of Jesus' words to transform you as you immerse yourself in them. Tied to this healing pronouncement that Jesus utters in this man's presence, he tells the man, as you see, to go. In other words, to go home to his son who is now well. And how does this royal official respond to Jesus' words? Look again at verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. This is amazing. Without any tangible proof that His son had actually been healed. This royal official is simply taking Jesus at his word and started off for home, thereby indicating that he doesn't need signs and wonders from Jesus. Simply a word, a sentence from Jesus will do. This man has nothing at this point but the bare word of Jesus to go on, and this is sufficient him. This man's attitude is if Jesus tells me to go home, and if Jesus tells me that my son lives, then I will believe Jesus and I will do exactly what Jesus tells me to do. And again, such an attitude reveals that this man is more like the Samaritans earlier in this chapter than he is like the Galileans and the people of Judea. The Samaritans simply believed upon hearing Jesus' words. This man also believes upon hearing Jesus' words. The Jews demanded miracles before they would believe. This man needed no miracles. He he didn't need to see miracles with his eyes in order to believe. Just a simple word from Jesus was all that he needed. So he believed the word of Jesus and starts off and heads for home, believing the word of Jesus that his son was healed. And I want you to put yourself in this man's 
uh, situation and think carefully about what you would have done and realize what a bold step of faith it is for this man to right now hear this from Jesus and walk away from Jesus and travel to his son who is 18 miles away. In walking away from Jesus to go to his son, this man knows that there's going to be no chance, given his son's condition, to go home and discover that his son is still sick and then come back and try to find Jesus again. He knows that he is about to take an all or nothing step with his son's life hanging in the balance, yet this dad is willing to obey Jesus' command and go home. And he takes this step because he is completely trusting Jesus' word that the boy is healed. That's astounding faith for this man who is just now meeting Jesus. There's also, I think, a wonderful submissiveness in this man's faith. When Jesus told him to go home, this man could have said, "Uh, no, not so fast, Jesus. Um, My original plan was for you to come with me to Capernaum and to heal my son. But this man doesn't respond that way. He's fine with his son being healed in a way that was different from what he had originally planned. He submits to Jesus' plan over his own plan, and he goes home without Jesus. I think we can learn something from this father about the wisdom of letting go of our own plans when God has something else in mind, right? We're all good at making plans that God should follow, aren't we? We come up with our perfect plans for how God needs to work, and we bring those plans to God and say, God, here is the perfect plan for how you need to work in this situation. I've thought about it. I got it all figured out. But then we notice that God ignores our plan and goes about following his own plan instead. And his plan is often quite different than our plan, right? In such situations, we should always remember that whenever God ignores our plan A, it's always because he has a plan A plus in mind. And it's often because our own plan A didn't really deserve the A rating that we had given it after all. I know this is true in my own life. I've had a lot of plan A's that I am so glad that God ignored and did things his way instead of my way. And again, think about how this was so in this man's case. This man's plan A would have at least put a one or two day delay on his son getting healed when Jesus instead heals his son without any delay due to travel. And this royal official embraces Jesus' plan over his own and acts immediately to head home as Jesus told him to do, fully believing Jesus' word that his son was healed. This brings us to the fourth step that this man takes in his journey toward believing in Jesus with his whole household. Number four, he seeks to understand the healing of his son in connection with Jesus. 
He seeks to understand the healing of his son in connection with Jesus. Observe what John says in verse 51. As he was now going down, in other words, from Cana down to Capernaum, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So this man doesn't even make it home before his slaves meet him on the road to tell him the good news that his son was now okay. But once they give him this news, the man is not content. He presses them for details. Observe what happens beginning in verse 52. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, which is seven hours after sunrise, which is around one in the afternoon. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. What we see here is that this man is not content to simply know that his son was healed. He wants to know when the turnaround happened. He wants the details down to the time of day. If God has done a great work in his son's life, this father wants to know the timing of it. And why does he want to know? Well, for one, we know that this father has already believed the word of Jesus, right? We've already seen that. So we know he's not inquiring in order to find out whether or not Jesus had anything to do with his son's healing. What he's doing is inquiring about the timing of his son's healing in order to confirm his belief and to confirm the connection of his son's deliverance with the words that Jesus had spoken to him the day before. And he finds out from his servants that it was at one in the afternoon that his son's fever left him on the previous day. And this man thinks back on his conversation with Jesus and realizes this is exactly the time in which Jesus spoke the words of power, your son lives. This man wanted to know this information, no doubt, also because he's planning on telling others the story of what Jesus has done. He plans on telling his whole household about what Jesus has done for them all. And he would tell them that at one in the afternoon the previous day, Jesus said, your son lives. And it was exactly at that time that his son was healed. And this father would want to be able to say this to the members of his household to demonstrate that his son's recovery was caused by Jesus so that these members of his household would also come to believe in Jesus together with him. I should say that we should do the same thing with regard to our own children or with anyone that we are ministering to. When God does a good work in someone's life, we should want to know the details, not so that we can connect that good work that's in them to us, but to Jesus. The truth is that any blessing those we minister to ever receive 
or any change that comes over them is from Jesus. Jesus is the source of all the good in our lives. So we should train even those that we minister to with this mindset where they see that any blessing that they receive, even through us, or any change that comes over them is a blessing granted to them by Jesus. We should train them to make the Jesus connection regarding any achievement or transformation that they experience in their lives. And we who minister to others should also take any good thing that ever results from our ministry and connect it to Jesus and give Jesus all the glory instead of seeking glory for ourselves. Does that make sense? I think this needs to be said because I've noticed that sometimes we're good, even in ministry, at making the me connection. When God does something good in someone's life, if someone we're ministering to is flourishing in some way, we might be tempted to say to people, you see this great thing in this person? That's because I discipled them. Or because I counseled them. I helped them to get to this place. This father in this story isn't really thinking that way. He doesn't take credit for himself. He doesn't see himself as the hero in this story. Jesus is the hero of this story. And if you look at the text, you see that the dad realizes that the boy got well at the time Jesus spoke his healing words of life. And it seems evident that this dad wanted to make sure that everyone is going to be able to make that Jesus connection in the days to come. And evidently, he was successful in doing this, which leads us to the fifth and the final step that this dad takes in his journey toward believing in Jesus with his household. And this is the culmination of the story. So here's point five. He believed in Jesus with his whole household. Observe what John says in the latter part of verse 53. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is actually very interesting uh, to read this in verse 53. Back in verse 50, John already told us that this man believed. And here again, he tells us that this man believed. The difference now is that in verse 50, John said that the man believed Jesus' word, yet here John tells us that this man believed without any object, which means that this man's faith is now broad and all-encompassing. This man believed that this miracle in the life of his son came from Jesus, and he believed all that such a healing reveals about Jesus as the true Messiah. This man is now a committed believer in the Lord Jesus. And there's another difference too. In verse 50, we're told that this man believed Jesus' word. But here, John is now telling us that this man is joined in faith by the people of his whole household which would include his wife and children along with his household servants. This means that this dad would have, upon returning 
to his home would have sat his whole household down, including his healed son, and told them the full story of what Jesus had done and what Jesus had spoken. And the family would have responded to that Jesus connection by joining this man and becoming believers in Jesus as this father helped them to see the connection of his son's healing to Jesus. What's wonderful is that this man was not content to believe in Jesus alone, but sought to bring his family with him in his faith, and wonderfully, they followed. The statement in verse 53 about this dad's believing also teaches us something important about the nature of faith in the life of a believer. As a Christian, you don't just believe in Jesus once. You believe multiple times every day. On the previous day, this man believed Jesus' word. We saw that stated in verse 50. On the next day, in verse 53, this man believed again. If the story continued, we probably would have learned that on the day after that, this man believed yet again, because that's what a true believer does. A true believer keeps on believing in Jesus in ever-deepening ways. I would challenge all of you this morning to believe in Jesus today. Then when you wake up tomorrow, believe in Him again. Then the next day, believe in Him yet again. When facing temptation, believe in Jesus when going through a hard time or whenever you are on the receiving end of wrong, believe in Jesus. When experiencing a great blessing from the Lord, believe in Jesus. When you are burdened to the point of desperation over someone you are ministering to and that your heart is breaking for, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus enough to intercede with God in Jesus' name on behalf of that person that your heart is breaking for. When you read in the Word things that Jesus says about that fellow Christian that you are ministering to, believe in the Word of Jesus. And when you see Jesus come through and bring about a miracle in the person's life that you are ministering to, believe again in Jesus. If some biographer were to follow you around day after day and watch how you lived your life and ministered to others, may the narrative that they would write frequently include the statement, he believed, she believed. And may it be your ambition this ministry year not to believe in Jesus by yourself, but to believe in him together with the members of your whole household and with many others whom you have persuaded to join you in faith. This is actually, as we wrap things up this morning, this is actually the Apostle John's motive and even telling us this story in verse 54, John says, this is again a second sign that 
Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. His first sign miracle in Galilee after returning from Judea was turning water into wine at the wedding. We saw that in chapter 2. And now Jesus has done this miracle as a sign intended to point to and reveal something about himself. His miracle of turning water into wine in chapter 2 showed his power over the elements, his power to create. His miracle here shows his power over distance and his power over death and his power to give life at will. In fact, if you look carefully at the text we've studied this morning, you'll notice that three times in this account, we see the verb live mentioned. In verse 50, Jesus says to this father, your son lives. In verse 51, this man's servants tell him that his son was living. And in verse 53, we're told that the father realizes that his son was healed right at the time when Jesus had said, your son lives. Through these three uses of the verb for living, John is pointing us to the fact that Jesus has life within himself and he has the power to give life with merely a word and to actually snatch a person from the very jaws of death. And John, writing this, wants you to have life from Jesus too. In fact, toward the end of John's gospel in John chapter 20 in verse 31, John looks back on all that he's written in his gospel, including the story that we've studied today. And he says in John 20, 31, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that believing you might have life in his name. You see, John is after something very personal with you and with me. He wants you to have life, real life that lasts forever, real life that comes to those who believe in Jesus' name. And that life can be yours this morning if you believe in Jesus. The irony is that in our story today, Jesus saves this man's son from death. Yet in a couple years, God is going to have his own son die on a cross so that those who believe in him will have atonement for their sins and be able to receive salvation and have eternal life through Jesus who died and was raised from the dead on the third day. If you're here this morning and you have never believed in the Lord Jesus, I urge you to believe in him today. I assure you that he stands ready to save you from the guilt of your sins and to deliver you from your sins and to give you life in his name. Let the story that we've looked at today inspire you to believe in Jesus 
One of the things you notice reading through the Gospel of John is that sometimes John will inspire us to believe in Jesus by simply putting on display the excellencies of Jesus, and he does that in this passage. At the same time, John lets us see this royal official who is a model of faith in Christ in the midst of a dire situation. And we see much in this man for us to emulate, not only as parents, but also as care group leaders and ministry leaders and as disciplers of others as we seek to help people in their journey from the brokenness of sin to wholeness in Jesus Christ through the gospel. If you dare to involve yourself in ministry to others, your heart will on many occasions be wrung and broken with sorrow and deep concern for those you love and minister to. But you will always be able to come to Jesus and intercede with him on their behalf. And you will always be able to point them to Jesus who can give them what you can't and what no other person can give. And yes, as parents, we all have much to learn from this royal official. Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church needs dads and moms who are clinging to Jesus and holding fast to Jesus and interceding with God in the name of Jesus for the spiritual well-being of our children. We need parents who will go to any lengths to obtain from Jesus the things that their children most need. Parents who persist in prayer to God on behalf of their children. The children of Cornerstone need many miracles, but the greatest miracle they need is the miracle of a dad and a mom who have a maturing faith in Jesus and who are interceding with God in Jesus' name on their behalf. In fact, I would say that if you are a parent, the greatest service that you can render to this church and to your children is to wrestle with God in prayer on behalf of your children day after day, month after month, and year after year as you plead with God for your children at whatever age and stage of life they are at. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. I was just talking with a young mom yesterday who is feeling desperate as a parent of two young children, one of them three and a half years old, the other a little under a year old, and and they're pursuing uh, listening to different resources to learn how to parent. Uh, But she said to me, I often feel that I don't know how to parent my children, but I do know how to pray. And that she does, praying for her children and with her children. And when things are getting out of hand, even between her and the children, she will stop and say, let's pray. And she will pray for herself and for her children and ask for God's help. And when she sins as a mom, she will pray with her children 
and confess her sins to God in front of them. This happens with enough frequency that she was telling me yesterday that her three-year-old daughter will often say to her, Mommy, you need to pray. (laughs) Pray, parents. Pray your heart away. Unburden your heart onto the Lord. Pray for your children and pray with them and call down the blessing of heaven upon your children. And what we learn here is not just for parents, but for all of us who minister to others. Part of my reason for preaching on this passage today is because of the lesson it teaches all of us about ministering to other people. If this dad's son in our story was thirsty, this dad could easily bring him water to drink. If his son needed a damp cloth on his head to comfort him in his fever, this dad could have got a rag wet and put it on his son's head. But if this son needed deliverance from the jaws of death, this dad knew that he could not provide that for his son. So he went to Jesus and interceded with Jesus to give his son what he knew that only Jesus could give to him. When we minister to others during this ministry year, we should do the things that God has given us to do on behalf of others. We should love and speak truth and serve others in the strength that God gives to us. But we can't change people's hearts And we can't rescue those who are spiritually dead and bring them to life. But Jesus can. And we can pray to God in Jesus' name for God to do such things, which means that one of the greatest ministries that you and I can engage in on anyone's behalf is to pray as we intercede with God through Christ to provide for them what only God can provide. So let's remember that this ministry year. Let's work hard in ministry to others and let's pray even harder. And then let's savor the details of how God works in order that we might give all the glory to Jesus for doing what only he can do. Okay? For there is no telling what God can do through a church full of people who work hard, And who pray even harder, caring only that Christ be glorified in the end. And may that be the story of this ministry year. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful for a passage like this that is just loaded with encouragement and hope and insight Jesus, we're just so thankful for this glimpse of you that we are treated to today. Our society so needs you, Jesus. We so need you, Jesus. Help us to walk with you and to abide at your feet and to intercede with you and to obtain from you that which those we love need from our children to others in the church family to the loss that we are seeking to influence toward faith in you. And I pray if there 
or any in this room that have never believed in you this morning, Lord, that you would just draw them to yourself, that they would be smitten by the beauty and the power and the goodness of Jesus who can just heal with a word from a distance. And you would rejoice to speak a saving word over them this morning from your position at the very right hand of the Father and save them in this moment. If they would cry out to you and believe in you, even in the quietness of where they are seated right now. Use us, Lord, in a great way as we minister and we will be quick to give you all the praise and all the glory. And we say these things to you and ask these things of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,